0: And welcome to episode 328 of The Crate and Crowbar, a PC gaming podcast recorded on the 17th of June 2020. I'm Marsh Davis and I'm joined this evening by Alex Wiltshire. Hello. And Chris Thurston.
1: Hello. What's the news? I was interested to read uh, within the last few days of a really weird thing on, um, on Steam that's been going on. It's something that I do not have any answers to at all, but... It's a, it's a phenomenon, which is odd. So there's a game that came out um, in uh, called AI Ball, which came out, let me check. It came out, um, according to the Steam page, all the way back on in June 2016. And uh, it looks a bit like Gang Beasts, except that you're playing football. Um, and I believe very few people bought it, but it existed. Um, but then uh, sometime last year, uh, the people who did buy it uh, saw that it updated. And when they tried to load it, um, the game changed. What they now had was a game called Penguin Cretins, <laughs> 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 which wasn't an AI ball at all. Uh, Penguin Cretins, um, I looked at a video on, um, on, on YouTube of it, and it's a sort of a crappy, very crappy looking sort of side-runnery game, f- somewhat physics-y. Uh, it has nothing to do with uh, AI um, ball. Um, and people got upset about it because they, it wasn't the game they bought. Um, and they complained about it and complained about it. And then finally, um, last week, it was changed back again to uh, AI ball. Um, and nobody has said anything about it. Um, uh, and like, but it's been described as being a some sort of scam but it's a scam that I do not understand in any way because, well, the people who did it had to buy, make two games um, (laughs) in order to do the scam. Um, Right. Their game that came out second. So Penguin Cretins uh, became free to everybody. So it's not like they got extra sales um, on an old game that, that people had already done their buying on. So it have gained more, Uh, page impressions because it was an established game maybe
2: maybe they're trying to sell penguin cretins 2 to ea and they (laughs) and they needed to prove that there was a substantial audience for the penguin cretins franchise therefore they just created the penguin cretins audience out of the ai ball audience and then switched it back as soon as they snapped up that hot deal
1: Maybe that's it. That's my
2: guess. Yeah, definitely wrong.
1: There's some conjecture <laughs> from one of the re- reviewers on um of um on AI Ball who who complained. You know, don't buy. I bought in 2016 a game called AI Ball. They wonder whether um it's a way of publishing a new game without having to go the proper process of publishing a game on Steam. But these Ooh. days, that doesn't. You can put. You don't have to. You can put as many games you like up on Steam once you're in through the doors you've paid your 100 bucks whatever it is
2: could it not have just been a really bad fuck up like i've accidentally pressed publish and replaced <laughs> my game with a different oh game.
1: no we've lost ai ball
2: right <laughs> well, you now new game <laughs> they, they press save rather than save as and now <laughs> ai ball is penguin cretins <laughs> i must know what is penguin cretins
1: I mean it it appeared it appeared to be yeah like this side on sort of uh uh sort of physicsy racery game where you're looking at the the this kind of st- sort of stunty style um obstacle course and you're a penguin presumably stupid but yeah that's all I know because it's gone now <laughs> That's real weird. That's a really it is real weird. weird. But apparently, that's not the only one. Um, there, there's been another one. I'm gonna just look it up. Um, so, uh, there's been some a few other games doing this as well. Um, there was a a Tale of Fortune, a game called Tale of Fortune, began life as a voxel style pirate adventure, but then was code swapped for an adults only hentai game. <laughs> um, an online beta, battle royale shooter called Epic Royal, R- Royal which, would that be Royale? It's no e, Epic Royal it was previously an open world survival game called Integrity, and a retro <laughs> arcade, yeah, <laughs> and a retro arcade game called Back to the Eighties, morphed it from a side-scrolling shooter titled Cthulhu. So, hmm. huh? This Odd. must be a,
2: there must be a thing.
0: It's got to be some way of duking the impenetrable Steam algorithm, but well, I can't immediately see what that how that w- would work in this case. Yeah, it's maybe just by having existing sales, they expect that this their new game would be
1: get granted more visibility in some way. Maybe could it
2: be the review what? quantity?
0: Like that's could like,
1: be. but there's barely any. There's like AI Ball was a really obscure game. Like there's nothing there. Yeah. You know.
0: Right, you'd expect it would be prejudiced uh, this, against games which had been around for a long time, hadn't sold well, and didn't have any reviews in a long <laughs> time. But, uh, hmm.
1: Here's a, all right. Here, here's a, a theory. Maybe, maybe it's a really dodgy publisher who's who's grabbing games from from developers, saying that they're going to publish them on Steam. They put them up on Steam um, and say, "Hey, look, we've got you know sales of your game." and then it's a scam against the developer maybe maybe still don't understand the shape of that
2: given that it's not necessarily that hard as as has been said to get a game on steam now like the only thing i think is like what if you temporarily needed a functioning steam link for a game for a bit for some reason or like the ability to generate keys for a limited amount of time in order to then sell them to someone else would be like Huh. Like, you know, like to pull a, a shitload of keys out and sell them to some, you know, dodgy kind of key reseller, maybe. Like that's, I, I don't know, I'm I'm struggling to articulate what the crime is, really. Like, it sounds
0: bad, but yeah. <laughs> and, but, <you> know. <laughs> hmm. Mysterious. Probably a crime. <laughs>
1: if It tastes like crime. What, what is shape <laughs> what is shape
0: <laughs> have you got any crime shape
2: news chris well um i'll start with not a crime and then we'll we'll see um so actually i wanted to mention steam is doing a sort of summer demo extravaganza whose name i've forgotten at the moment uh, where you can get demos for for lots of games and the streams and things showing them off and i just mm, wanted for a, to a week for a week it'll is this going to still be running when this podcast goes live yeah i think probably. so um but i did want to say that the demo for the game that pip is working on with Hazelton, amongst his expedition is available through this um scheme uh and just do a plug basically cool. you should play it it's very it's it's very lovely
0: very excited to play it do, yeah but again what is so okay this i mean this is another steam mystery what is in it for developers that this is time limited Why would that be a good thing?
2: I suppose it does focus attention on on demos. I quite like these sort of like demo rush weeks, actually. It's probably quite a good way of getting people to actually try stuff, um, which has got risks associated with it. I I suspect also it might be quite a good uh, playtesting and feedback resource, given that no one is going to Res or GDC or any of the other places where indie devs particularly get access to an audience. Who don't necessarily already own the game?
0: I did just acquire a thousand seven hundred new games, though, <laughs> this <laughs> last week. Right? So, and yeah, not that they could have predicted that necessarily at the time they were putting this together, but still,
1: I still, yeah, I mean, I still did actually. I have played one game. I didn't realise that um, the um, Alan and um, Pips one is out, so I'll check that out. But I, I played XO One, which I've had my eye on for mm. quite a while now. Um, this evening, earlier on this evening. Which is um, it's like mm. tiny wings, but in 3D in weird th- three sp- you know, like uh, weird sci-fi land. Do you, do you know the what I'm about? Yeah, I do, I've, I been do in, yeah.
2: I've, I've been in the I've had access to the beta for a fair while
1: now. Oh have you? Uh, yeah
2: yeah, um, because um, Jay Weston, who is the developer of the game, is a lovely man. Um, oh. who because um, I remember seeing that game for the first time, I think in the left field at Rezd a couple of years ago now. Um, yeah. and really, really liking it. And yeah, that is a, that is a good, that, yeah, it's a good Kubrickian marble adventure.
1: It is. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that, so it's like, just to ex- explain it, you are a ballie and you do rollies. Um, and when you go up a hill and you've got sufficient speed, your ballie go flying in the air, but then you can click the mouse button, hold the mouse down, down and then you plummet, uh, gaining more speed uh, and you use the topography of the Rolly kind of uh, landscape, in order to basically fly as much as you can, you can you can glide and you can kind of steer yourself around, and there are weird beacons to follow, and but it feels really nice. But one of the things I really enjoyed, and it looks. Lovely, and it's got lovely film grain and washes of color and things, bits and, and light and and kind of haze and fog and things. But um, the sound effects are just amazing. It, it you hear when you're sort of scraping along the ground or rolling along the ground, you can hear bits of dust and, and 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 stones hitting your your sphere, little crackly sounds, and and you swoosh up into the air. Oh, it's lovely, lovely, lovely.
2: It's really nice. Uh, I like it a lot. I've, I'm looking forward to spending more time with it, actually. I've only played a couple of hours of it lately in the most recent version. Yeah. yeah it's real, real nice. I can talk about another spe- bit of space news, if you'll forgive me. <laughs> Please. Um, so I appreciate this is slightly old news at this point, but um, there's been a ton of announcements about what's going to happen with Destiny over the next couple of years. And while a lot of it is, you know, chiefly of interest to Destiny, players who will already know all of this stuff. I do think there's some interesting stuff in there about some of the practicalities of running one of these sort of kind of increasingly high fidelity MMOs basically in the modern era. And so the long and short of it is the, and I appreciate this is going to come from a person who is traditionally a bit of an apologist for Bungie and destiny that um, I love that game very much. It's one of my favorites and, and I've gotten a lot out of it And and I've always had a lot of sympathy for, for, Bungie's position and, and have you know at least some abilities understand the kind of pressure that developers find themselves under both in these current working conditions and also generally running a live game is easy so i'm um, usually so to criticize and so that is the heavy caveat i'm putting in front of the fact that the last season of the game the last three months uh, as the game is divided up was a train wreck mm-hmm. it was every unforced error you can imagine it was just like it was kind of shocking and it got to the point where towards the end i was genuinely like this is the you know if my relationship with the game was a health bar this is the lowest it's ever been in in the five years i've been playing destiny games and just thing after thing that they didn't need to get as as wrong as they did um they tried to do a sort of in-game olympics where all the classes faced off against each other in a competition it, it didn't work because of some fairly predictable player incentivization stuff that meant that after the first day, it simply wasn't a competition. It was obvious who was going to win and they won. Um, They mm-hmm. they did a, uh, I could get into all of this, but I, I don't, I won't because I'll bore people to death, but they they did a, then they tried to launch a kind of a big uh, community driven uh, uh, collective effort to, to uh, unlock a new weapon quest for everybody. Um, And this was about doing a public event like an open world event um, a million times or 3 million times uh, across the entire destiny player base. And they'd obviously calculated this based on how much they thought it would take, but they did this like two months into the season when everyone was already really bored of that event. And they did it immediately after making the event much harder. So the average groups couldn't do it in an environment where the matchmaking didn't work. So they had to humiliatingly keep making it easier until the players finally did it because players or always also data mined that like you know what the weapon was going to be, and the cosmetics they were going to sell for it, and all the rest of it. So there was no doubt that we had to succeed. But then the community was like, "Well, what if we don't? <laughs> like, what if we just don't do this?" That happened. <laughs> then, uh, so they said, "Like, well, we we'll should to keep moving the bar until you do do it because we planned for you to do it." Then, um, they decided to wrap the season up with a sort of uh, the first like in-game live event, and they have been pushing this idea that everyone would benefit from having some kind of this sort of FOMO stuff where if you weren't there at the time, you don't get to see it. And I I think this is a really bad fit for Destiny personally, which has always had this balance between being a multiplayer game and also a shoot away you are the protagonist So having stuff that just happens, and if you weren't there, fuck you, doesn't feel right. Hmm. Um, But uh, all this collective effort involves uh, setting up a big AI so it can shoot lots of missiles at a bad spaceship that's going to crash into the Earth. And this culminated in a live event where... You know they knew they'd said this is how it's going to end where you could log in at a particular time and watch the thing you know plummet into the atmosphere and watch the big spectacular skybox event basically as a community and um i was actually kind of looking forward to this because i was sort of in this mood for like well this season has really sucked but i can i i want i have so much goodwill for this game that i kind of want that moment at the end where you all kind of stand together in the community and almost jumping around and doing emotes and you watch the big spectacular fireworks show, basically, the sort of Fortnite style live event, and end the season on a bang and, and great, we'll you know, we'll just sort of you know say goodbye to it on a on a high note. Um, and so the the event ended up happening at four to five, four pm, six p.m. on Saturday week and a half ago now. To, um and obviously this would have been planned very carefully, the time zones to make sure it matches up with the bulk of the player base, the fact that it's a Saturday afternoon, so more people are going to be free. Guess when they um, announced it the time?
1: Very shortly before.
2: Yeah, they announced it They announced it 24 hours before on Twitter and about 20 minutes before in-game.
1: And so I missed it.
2: I, I missed it. And it was just like because I don't follow Destiny on Twitter and I barely use Twitter. And I... I happened to be playing the game that morning. And when you log in, it will often do a pop-up. say so like, here's what's happening in the game. Yeah. But here's they didn't the add that. Yeah. They didn't add that pop-up until about 20 to 45 minutes before the event happened. And I had already logged off for the day. And it's like, that's a, that's a, you don't have like, there you can, I, I people like me could point to all the technical reasons for other things going wrong. That one's just weird. Yeah. That one's just like, were they worried about server load? So there's like, we prefer this live event, but we're not going to tell you <laughs> like, it was just really strange. So anyway, wasn't so it really was the, late
1: when it came to it as well? It No,
2: it wasn't late. The, what they didn't communicate was that there's a wind up. So the event took basically like, it was like an hour of watching this thing get closer and closer in the sky and watching missiles streak towards it extremely slowly. And then like <laughs> a couple of minutes of like explosions and action at the end. And that's often how these things work. Like in, in MMOs, there's often quite a lot of waiting around the event because you want to give people a grace period to arrive to hear that it's happening and, and log in. You also want um, to account for the fact that people might kind of disconnect of the settling time. They've said since that they they will want to give a better sense of, people a better sense of how long they can expect to wait for the sort of action to take place. But they describe it as the equivalent, and I kind of agree with this from having run similar things, albeit in a much more indie context, like to, you know, if you go to a gig, doors are at seven, but that doesn't mean the band is on at seven. Like you say when the event you know, when to be in position, and then you can expect to wait half an hour for the actual action to take place. Hmm. Anyway, that was the and then the other thing is normally they would announce uh the next season like a couple of weeks in advance that the trailer and stuff like that. They did none of that. They didn't really send the name of the season. And so there's this weird feeling coming out of this series of mistakes that like, is it over? Like, are they gonna do anything? Like what's going to happen. And then there's this big reveal event, which is really well put together honestly, for a bunch of different reasons. Um, They did a really nice little documentary about how they've adapted to working from home and, and some of the pressures involved in that. Um, and that's good. I think, you know, it's obviously very positive about them, but also I think it's good for players to become more aware of the pressures that does put on companies and hmm. that it's not business as usual and have some empathy and, and things like that. And that that's very positive. Um they 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 did a countdown to the beginning of the live stream and then but then began the live stream with a further uh 8 minute and 46 second countdown uh <laughs> which just um pushed which just promoted people to go and, and inform themselves about the black lives matter movement which i thought was a, an appropriate way hmm. of uh, acknowledging um eight, 8 minutes and 46 seconds being the um mm, okay. you know the the amount of time that uh George Floyd's neck was kneeled on. And like that, that I thought was like a way of addressing, you know, bridging the thing that's very tricky for everybody at the moment, I think in games marketing and, and games generally of, of addressing frivolous things um, and while acknowledging the the enormity of things that are happening in the world more broadly. That was all good. And then they just sort of rolled out with a trailer for a new expansion called um, Beyond Light, which is coming in in, in September. And then they announced the expansion for the year after that which is called the witch queen and then they, expan- they announced the expansion for the year after that which is called uh Lightfall, okay. and used this as a way of hammering home in fact that destiny 3 is definitely not happening hmm. um so they're going to continue to expand destiny 2 and the, th- the thing that um i think was really interesting because it's always interesting when developers have to give bad news is um addressing a problem that they've increasingly had which is You know, Destiny is a high fidelity game with very detailed environments, and um, the the um, the size of the game has gone up by about twenty five gig a year Mm -hmm. um, ever since it's come out, and it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. It's it's barely uh, you know you'd say it was barely sustainable for people's PCs. Um, Call of Duty Warzone absolutely takes the piss in this regard. It's up to like two hundred odd gig at this point because. Even if you only want to play for the free-to-play Warzone thing, you have to download every addition to the single-player campaign and the other multiplayer modes that you don't own, um, which is completely fucking nuts. But they don't want this thing to become this sort of multi-hundred-gig bare-mouth people's hard drives. It also makes it very hard to create builds of the game. And it creates problems on the consoles, even the new generation of consoles. um, It pushes against manufacturer-imposed limits and stuff. And so what they're doing... Is just vaulting a shitload of content. Basically, at the end in September this year, four or five of Destiny's planets are just going away, and almost all of the content from the first year of Destiny Two, including the Destiny Two campaign, just won't be playable anymore.
1: Bloody uh, hell!
2: Which is really interesting because that's a good initial reaction, Alex. And is this the first you're hearing is this?
1: It? No. See, this is the thing. This, this is the interesting thing because they like Bungie have a way of speaking and this way of speaking mm. is about appearing grandiose and skilled and and wise and remarkable and you know and and i i i scanned it and didn't really pay that much attention because i've been off the old destiny for quite a while now and i've just been on other things and i just wasn't paying that much attention And I came away with the impression, like, oh, yeah, it sounds like a good thing. Yeah, archiving, that sounds really good. Like, because it's in an archive. So it's like, it's archived. So that's good. And that's, (laughs) and now you're rephrasing it and it's saying, I'm going, bloody hell. Yeah. (laughs) It's archived. You can't play it in an archive. You can't. And
2: they're doing some other interesting things. Like, they're basically saying that they put it in a box and it might come back in the future. But also everything from Destiny 1 is in that box, so they're actually bringing back a bunch of Destiny 1 stuff this year, um, which would be interesting to people on the PC never to play it. Um, But what I think is, I think there's two things that are interesting about this. One is the principle itself. Like, other MMOs haven't had to do this, but also other MMOs don't have quite the same fidelity or, um, you know, kind of... There's um, a constancy yeah. as
1: well. Like you you know, as a as a Destiny player, you do zip in and out of old content all the time in a in a way that you don't in most MMOs. Like MMOs you can generally yeah. tell, you can gauge how many people are gonna go back to old areas because you know it's just gonna be a tiny proportion of the they audience. it's usually new mean- players.
2: The one thing I will say, though, is that Bungie have always had really good data on what players do. Like, they've done this since Halo. And like they did say that there's stuff that's taking up gigs and gigs of space that less than 0.3% of the player population ever okay. do. Mm. So that's a lot of the stuff that's going away. But it's also a lot of stuff that's going away. And I think I think you're right. Like There's a broad point. I think it's definitely been pointed out couple us months. Bungie's communication style is really weird. And sometimes they really nail it. And I think this presentation was good. Um, but sometimes the slightly arch way of it's not always like it's not always grandiose. It's just sort of performative yeah, in a way that's that's that I bad. don't think is is very effective often. Um, um, you know, particularly for for the bulk of players. And but that that's getting into the kind of like comms theory side of this, which I can tell it's you know of interest to us. But but from a player's point of view, the the, the other way I was thinking about this, and it's kind of interesting because. Other MMOs, people don't expect to lose access to stuff, and it's super complicated, and they don't know if it's ever going to be comfortable for people. And the flip side is that at this point in Destiny 1's life, Destiny 2 came out and effectively rendered all of Destiny 1, including an expansion that was only six months old, basically irrelevant, hmm. um, and with you know a one-way character transition between the two. And so this is the equivalent of only removing the first two years of Destiny one you know what i mean and so it's sort of interesting i mean maybe just interesting to me but it's sort of both as a technical necessity and a weird thing to have to consider like making your game smaller so that you can keep updating it because that's makes more sense as a business um but yeah i don't know and i'll be really i'm really interested to see the kind of reaction this gets as it looms closer and it becomes real for more people because the other thing that i've been thinking about recently is you know Fortnite. i think it's done it very recently blows up its world and reinvents itself all the time and mm-hmm. i i think i wonder as we increasingly move away from a kind of boxed i own this and therefore how dare you change it attitude towards game ownership towards more that this is a phenomena and as not i mean i hate the word service but like this is a a little world I log into with my friends and it changes all the time. And I don't always get to do everything. It's like,
1: it's the, yeah, like it's the private, you I think um Fortnite is a private space. That's how I see it. It's like, it's like going into a shopping center. You don't own this place so they can right. do what they like with it. Um But they'll put it on a show for you because they want you there. Um, yeah, exactly. Whereas, whereas kind of destiny is, you kind of thought it was private because you bought it, but it isn't because they just sold your house from underneath you. Yeah. And you know,
2: It's definitely an awkward transition. I don't think it's going to be smooth at all, but I just wonder how it will go down with different audiences, particularly a younger audience, which has grown up with this, you know, I mean, Pitt in the movie is very pertinent that at the moment, you know, teenagers aren't going to hang out in shopping centers. They are hanging out on Fortnite. Yeah. Well, you know, and so,
1: yeah. And I I think that, like, I think that the moment that they nail these public events you know, mm. as in letting people know about it ahead of time, making sure that they're suitably uh, dramatic throughout, <laughs> not to, not just at the very end, a very long, quiet, slow sequence, you know.
2: Do you know what they need to do? They need to do, because obviously the most spectacular uh, use of this in, in Fortnite was for a concert. They need to get giant holographic Paul McCartney to do his <laughs> awful Destiny song.
1: I'm down But like
2: that. in the sky, you know, prune into the traveler or something <laughs> above the tower. Like they've they've taken the piss out of that song a couple of times in Destiny 2 because I don't know why they did it. And it's one of the weirdest start marketing things that's ever happened. Have you heard the, the, Des- the oh, yeah. Destiny song? Oh,
0: Gosh? yeah. Sadly, yes. Okay, yeah.
2: <laughs> so if they don't and... if they don't leverage that, I don't understand what they're Do you doing. know what? Am I
0: going to
1: include this in the show notes just to, to punish oh, yeah. listeners? yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I would oh, um, no. I'd visit Eververse for that. Hell yeah. Listening? Are you listening, Bungie? I'd go to Eververse for that.
2: Bless them. Well, and so that's my update on, on how they're doing. Um that's all I've got to say about
0: that.
1: What have you been playing, Marty? <laughs> <laughs>
0: I've um I've been playing so many games. I've been playing um through the games that were in the Black Lives Matter Itchio bundle, based on recommendations of more learned people than myself, such as Tom Francis, who last week recommended Wide Open Big Jacket, uh, which is absolutely fantastic. It's one of the nicest, warm-hearted games. Incredibly funny. I thought very playful. Uh, that was excellent. Another game was Ethereal, which was recommended by John Walker on on the, his uh, website Buried Treasure, which has been doing a really good job of digging out some of the gems from the bundle, and that's sort of the, the website's purpose in in general. Um, and Ethereal is a really strange puzzle game. You sort of control this orb, which is fixed to a sort of 2D matrix of abstract shapes. And the puzzle is it's basically a navigation problem, how to get from this part of this maze of weird shapes to another, but while obeying really abstract odd rules for movement which are that you can move completely freely along this horizontal axis wherever you are until you hit a wall but you can only move up and down by hopping over walls which are vertically adjacent to you um and so much of the game is just about sort of rewiring your brain to parse this sort of chaotic looking level for routes that work with these rules um, and then it gets more complicated as it lets you reposition walls and use things which fire you off to other parts of the game. But it's it's very strange. It's very weird. I recommend it. And the third game I've been playing is um, also a recommendation by a uh, nice game journalist man, um, Chris Schilling, uh, who recommended Signs of the Sojourner. Um, I don't know. If, have
2: you heard of this one? Oh, yeah. I've heard of, haven't, don't know anything
0: well, it is—it's somewhere between um, a visual novel and a, a deck-building game. But uh, each conversation that you have in the game is essentially the game of cards that you play, and it's—it's quite—it's—it's it's quite a clever metaphor. The way that they've—they've they've set up the, the 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 mechanics of the card game to work, I don't think it is very entirely successful. But um, it's clever. So the the overall. Um, the overall premise is sort of less interesting to me than that mechanic, but it's It's set in this sort of colorful, cartoony, poco- post-apocalyptic um, world. Uh, humanity's technologically gre- regressed. It's living in these sort of dispersed settlements in the ruins of the, um, the old world. And you own a shop and in order to gain items to sell in the shop, you need to join this roaming caravan which uh, goes between various settlements and uh, so you can pick up wares to take back to your shop and sell. And along the way, you sort of get into uh, scrapes and uncover mysteries and learn about your your mother uh, who preceded you in this career. And you're also a fox. Mm -hmm. Um, No idea why. No one else is a fox, but um, you are a fox. I guess it's okay to be a fox. Mm -hmm. Why not? A
2: humanoid fox or like a, a fox fox?
0: Uh, you you you're a fox that could be involved in romantic
1: relationships, so okay. a humanoid one. I would, mm. I would imagine. Um, I like your criteria. <laughs> your criteria is quite <laughs> revealing. I don't know of, of what exactly, but
0: <laughs> narratively, uh, it hasn't really grabbed me yet. But I'm I'm quite early on. But anyway, the point of this is that the conversations are really quite interesting. So your 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 deck is. Um, you don't actually have... Well, you sort of do have dialogue conversations, but the majority of of the conversation is abstracted completely through the, the the process of playing cards from your deck. And Your deck is made up of these cards which sort of represent conversational gambits. So at the start, this means that you have uh, cards which have a colored dot on the left and they have a colored dot on the right. And your conversational partner will place a card and then you try to place a card next to it, which matches the color on the adjacent side of their card. It's like dominoes, exactly like dominoes, except with colored dots rather than multiples, you know, numbers of dots. Um, and when you place enough cards in sequence, you sort of reach like this conversational checkpoint and a little bit of dialogue pops up, which represents uh, like a positive outcome for that conversation. Or actually positive is, is not the right word. It's more like... Um, It's more like a concordant outcome Hmm. so if you fail to match a, a color the chain you built will be broken and you will get uh i was gonna say again not necessarily a bad conversational beat but a discordant one so the other person will be offended or confused or sad now those uh colored dots represent certain personality types sort of person or archetypes even so different characters have different composites of them in their deck depending on what kind of person they are like you might imagine an empathic character will have lots of green dots or or a creative character will have more pink dots etc and part of the game is or at least it should be but isn't quite about seeing what sort of character a person is and then modifying your play style to get the sort of hand which will give you the best chance of reaching concordance with them but it's not so to go back to that that concordance positive thing it's not really about like winning uh, a conversation you're not always it turns out sometimes it's better to actively seek discordance with people and this is where like the whole card game as a metaphor for conversation really really hmm. works because you have because you see you aren't necessarily getting the result you want from a conversation that goes well You've simply been incredibly agreeable to the other person, mm. and 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 so, for example, like um, you meet a character really early on in the game who um, I don't know if this is a bad character internally because I didn't I just chose to go down a different route, but he gave me kind of bad vibes. Like he sort of negs you a bit, mm. uh, and he's like he's just over familiar, and he he's kind of slightly bullying, and he's trying to get you to do something, and it just felt really off. And but I nonetheless sort of. Thought I'd aced the conversation with him because I had, you know, made all these concordant uh, sequences of of cards, and I realized I hadn't aced it at all. I completely fucked it because I just completely capitulated to what he wanted. And in fact, he, in fact, the mechanics of it, or rather his his use of the mechanics of it, had made it very difficult for me to refuse what he wanted because he was trying to steer the conversation into a result he wanted, and he had cards which sort of allowed him to to see my hand and so he was essentially able to stack his own deck to make it difficult for me to, you know, in, in inverted commas, fail the conversation mm. game and that it's, it really nails the feeling of agreeing to something you really <laughs> didn't want to agree to, but were too weak will to say no, <laughs> which is an experience I have frustrating amount in my life i
2: I, I mean i was thinking thinking myself there
0: christ (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but yeah so that's the only time it's really hit that note i don't know if later in the game there are sort of other social phenomena that it it somehow manages to express through this mechanics but that particular thing was really extraordinarily neat i thought Um, but there's there's sort of ways in which it just it, it it falls down for me i think first like fundamentally, I don't think it's character archetypes make really any sense. They sort of seem to be um, like a combination of of, of different uh, adjectives that don't necessarily sit together. So like one archetype is empathetic and observant and another is logical and diplomatic. And like, I don't really know what mm. that means, because like people who are super logical, I know quite a few of them and most of them are not very <laughs> diplomatic at all.
1: Yeah, right. Um,
0: And so, I don't really know that you could look at those archetypes and just map them onto characters and say, "Ah, that's a guy who's going to be logical and diplomatic," because I I, I don't really think those two things often go together. And that's and the sort of and the other issue: there's no real, there's no real opportunity for you to to strategize. The, The game just doesn't give you space to do it. Really, about how to tackle a particular conversational partner, right? Unless you've meet them multiple times because you don't really know what they're about until you've talked to them.
1: are you, are you kind of like, um, are you uh, creating your deck as you play Well, yes, uh, but I mean
0: this is I mean so this is also the other problem is that you don't have there's not much you can do to to mani- manipulate your deck of cards. you just you don't have many cards altogether. I think there's ten at the beginning at least I don't know if you gain more later on and you do n- learn new cards periodically but then you have to discard one of your existing ones right. and so and, unless you want to sort of intentionally lock out conversational options like you if you unless you say okay i'm never going to have uh, a card which has a green dot on the left and a blue dot on the right and that means that you can just never res- never never respond to certain some certain conversational parts mm. and, so, and so maybe it's and so, yeah, and so you end up just, well, at least I do, end up hedging your bets and getting this sort of a, a deck which has at least one card which reflects every option, and then that's it. Then you never really change that. And I guess what the game is trying to do is it's trying... you got to be it's trying
1: personality kind of thing.
0: Yes, exactly. I think it's making you t- trying to set out your stall and say, I accept that I'm not going to get along with these types of characters. But I just don't know that that's really how it feels. Like... Uh, how conversations work, how you grow, like grow as, as a social person. Mm. Like, I, I just don't think, uh, you know, as, as a traveling salesperson, I'm not just going to go, fuck creative people. I hate creative people. I do not have the social articulacy to deal with creative people. So from now on, I will make them all my enemies. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, uh, maybe people do do that. But generally, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Generally, I think as you learn more about people, you get better at dealing with them, even if you dislike them um yeah uh, i don't know it's weird the, the one one last thing but i'm sort of uncomfortable about defining my character in that way because the archetypes also don't make sense to me like i think if if i knew more about what they really meant i'd be okay sort of saying okay my character is you know creative and and empathetic but because they are sort of vague i just I, I just don't really know what i'm shaping my character to be and i don't really want to lock myself irrevocably down to this set of this set of behaviors which i just can't really identify with but you know yeah anyway it's it's, it's a really interesting game
1: i have been meaning to play it yeah. but it's interesting you should bring it up because um the game i've been playing this week is um finally is uh, griftlands from clay oh yeah um, which is also a conversational or half, a half of it is a conversational card game um, where, but it's much more mechanical um, and much less interested in personalities um, and more about hey what 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 can you what um abstract stuff can we do with conversations that we can reflect with cards it's really it's really interesting and i i know um tom has talked about it in the part in on the pod in the past um so i'll be kind of quite brief and i also haven't played more than maybe two or three hours of it so i'm really not sure what's happening yet but um it's a so this this game is an RPG. Actually, signs of Sojourner, is that is it like a, um, on rails story, or are you kind of what is is it more open RPG? What how's it all structured?
0: There is some um, freedom to where you go and who you talk to, um, and you can. There is obviously some amount of branching in it. Um, I don't know that it really opens up that much. I, I haven't gone far enough into it to
1: to tell. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Grifflin's is a full rpg wandering around the world and you know it's it's the world is, is is um represented on a map and you can walk to places where there are quests or story things that happen but in each of these locations there are all these characters and they will give you quests um and you will go on these quests, and and uh, in order to succeed at them, you will um, get into situations in which you will either fight, which is one of the forms of cards that you'll play, or negotiate, which is the conversational side, which is the other half of the game. And um, and as you play, you are constantly sort of um, uh, uh, manipulating the relationships you have with people, which gives you various benefits, boons, and also if you, they end up hating you, which the game is engineered to do. So so sometimes you'll get into a situation where you have to choose one person over the other, and one person will like you, and the other person will now hate you. And once they really hate you, uh, you'll get... Um, Uh, negative stuff that you have to cope with during the rest of the game and but if you get people to really like you you'll get uh, these these kind of um, permanent um, benefits so you're kind of doing all this stuff while also collecting cards and also going to bed at night so that you're replenishing your health and your um your resolve which is kind of the the terms in these this game I this is what I kind of found the first first kind of road hump over so you know you, you know people a lot of people are used to card games uh, on uh, on computers where um you know where you're like Hearthstone or or the Spyro, where you've got a health value which you're trying to def- to protect and you're trying to take down the opponent's health value and that's true for the combat side but the negotiation side your health is called resolve, um, um, and you are uh, wielding various different m- m- other uh, metrics like influence and dominance. Um, and you're playing diplomacy and hostility and manipulate style cards. And it's like, it was, I found it like what the what the hell is going on? It's still in early <laughs> access, so I th- th- and the. Um, uh, it it had a slight it has a, a present because it's just come out on Steam. It's been out on Epic Games Store for oh, six months or a year, maybe a year. But um, it's still uh, the tutorial. There is a tutorial, but it kicks in way after I'd made a, had to make a load of choices over cards to take, and I didn't understand what or was any of the cards. I have no idea what I was doing. <laughs> like well, eh, I love that then. But it, you know, hasn't really been a actually been a, a practical problem. But um, okay, so so. So th- there are loads of things I didn't really understand. And the the negotiation card game is quite different to any other computer CCG I've played. Um, uh, you still get things like, um, say, the Spire's intent system. So, so in, say, the Spire, you know what the enemy's intent is going to be for their turn, so you can react to it on your turn. So, you know, and, and that that pre- is present in this game. But in this game you have a resolve. So you have your personal kind of resolve, but you're also constructing what are called arguments. Um, and these arguments are these little things that that sort of sit nearby you, which will have an effect, uh, a bonus usually, um, and have their own resolve or health. Um, and in order to defeat, get rid of those, the enemy has to get rid of you know, actually direct attacks against them. And you'll do the same on the enemy. They will have arguments that you've got to defeat. And sometimes the arguments are actually related to the character that you're playing. So actually, this mm-hmm. is where the game does actually reflect the conversation and um, and which is neatly done, but it's it's a lot more mechanical than anything that, like, Surge, Signs of the Sojourner is going for, because you um, as you're, you know, I started off playing, you know, you've got these three different types of cards. As I said, you've got hostility, manipulate or diplomacy. Diplomacy cards are green, um, hostility ones are red, manipulate are uh, purple. And I thought, well, I'll go with the with the diplomacy because my character is going to be a diplomatic character, but that's not really how it plays out. <laughs> like you're not, it, you know, there, there's no, nothing really to, to be gained from being that kind of a character um you'll have certain you you might have a stronger deck if you have mostly diplomacy because they will have effects um particularly something called influence um which which has a, a i can't remember what the benefit is now i think it i think it it continually does damage to their resolve at at the end of your turn. Um, I think that's what it does anyway. But, you know, you'll have more opportunities to develop that and protect it if you specialize in a diplomacy deck. But it's interesting where here in this one, um, the problems I had weren't so much with how closely it was resembling human interaction than it Hmm. was with kind of my understanding of what an rpg is and how you act in rpgs you know right you know, where you're kind of like oh i i don't have to be a nice person <laughs> outside of the choices that you get in the sort of branching storylines you know in the actual mm. in the actual engagements in the actual fights you just win you know you just got play to win but it's it's incredibly intricate like just, there's so much of this game. There's so much going on. Um, there are multiple characters that you can play as. I think there are three. I've unlocked the second one. That second character popped up in my story as I played through the the, the character, that the, the first one that you've already have unlocked when you start playing the game. Um, there, each character you come across, um, you can have a look at your relationships with them. Um, and as I said earlier on, you are tracking kind of how much they like you and things. Um, And they also have a a unique card that if you, I think if you kill them, you'll get their card. Um, And there are situations in which you can kill them without repercussions, um, which would be if you meet them outside of one of the urban areas. Um, And there are situations where, I guess the law comes after you. I don't know. There's so much going on. Like, I can't quite get my head around it all because at the moment I'm just sort of buried in, a kind of mess of cards that i'm getting oh, uh, oh. just to mention uh, all of the cards upgrade as you use them or most of the cards upgrade as you use them <laughs> um as you upgrade them you then you know get a choice over which way you upgrade it that's another thing they get xp um uh, a lot of them will dis- destruct after a time so my instinct in ccgs is to Pair down my deck and this game is throwing cards at me and i'm thinking god this is too many I'm, my deck is but then i'm losing cards because i'm using them up and oh my goodness there's so much going on but i'm really enjoying <laughs> it it's really well written what happens if you kill a character that you uh, can also play as i don't know i haven't had an opportunity to fight that character i think it's i think that it's i think it's a cl- carefully written rpg in the sense that you know it's you know, quite controlled over what right. you can do. It's not like you you're not in a 3D world where you can walk up and hit anybody you like. Um, you know, you're, it's quite controlled. No. You know, it's very branching. But you know, the branchingness is interesting of its own. You've got factions you can join with, and, and other factions will dislike you as a result. There's a lot of game here there's a whole lot of game and they're just and you know you on the title screen they mm. show you all of you know in a few days time another big update's going to be released and after that some more so yeah it's super cool i haven't got a handle on it but um tom was right to have been saying play grifflins for the past few months <laughs> i might check it out i have to say i i'm a bit
0: leery of the way you describe the the conversations there because it sounds like they're being set up as competitions or or, or basically a yeah. ersatz combat yeah essentially is that, is that
1: right sometimes they're friendly conversations that you're trying to talk them into doing something you know they're not it is it's framed as combat um and you are you know when you play a hostility card this red card you know it it sort of you get this sense that you've said something nasty to them to bend them to your will, but hmm. but yeah, I do quite. I mean that's the thing I
0: I, qu- I quite like about not that these games sound terribly comparable really, but one of the, the things I really like about um, uh, Signs of the Sojourner is that the conversations are neither competitive nor necessarily collaborative they can be a mixture of the two which is how what conversations really are (laughs) and yet it still feels gamey enough to to be you know compelling which is an unusual mix i don't know if um but it it sounds like uh your game is sort of more focused on on making the, the mechanics of it richer and
1: uh yeah it's finding in the idea of having an argument with somebody um more things to do with ccg mechanics i think i would say like i think with a combat game when you're trying to model combat with with ccg i don't know how you would have satellite things that might be around you unless you have you frame it in some theme that's you know that you're making sci-fi orbs around you or something you know I don't know, it becomes more and more abstract in oh. this sense, like, oh, I've constructed an argument and now they've got to deal with that argument, and I can't. And you know, they're doing some really interesting things. So there was one person that I had to actually um assassinate, um, and to and I could talk to them before actually engaging them in combat. And that in that that um that that negotiation beforehand was framed in the sense that if I could destroy arguments that were not their actual main health, I would get benefits for the combat to come. So it's as if you've sort of intimidated them in some way before actually going into the the fight itself, which was kind of really interesting extra way to Mm. to, to, to play around with this stuff. That sounds good.
0: That sounds like I should check it out, along with once I get through the the other 1,700 games. (laughs) I now have access to. Can I mention one other game that I played this week, really quickly? Uh, But it's it's a game that I I want Chris's uh, insight on. Uh, I've been playing Mass Effect Andromeda, um, Hmm. which is a weird thing to play, you know, because it's a dialogue-heavy game. Immediately after uh, Signs of the Sojourner, I don't really know why I picked it up. I I guess I just fancied because there was all that you know Last of Us two kerfuffle at the end of last week. And um, I just sort of, I don't want to play that at all. (laughs) But uh, it did remind me of playing Naughty Dog games that I have enjoyed before they became sort of a needless exploration of human misery. Um, And then I just sort of wanted a big matinee adventure. Um, So I I downloaded Mass Effect 3 and and I like it.
1: I don't. I have no idea why it got shanked. Boy, yes, this is, yes. This is I, way this was going. This. I didn't know which way it was going to go either. That was a good. that, I mean, was, that, that was some good um, uh, uh, tent hooks. You tent hooks. yeah. God, yeah. yeah you was. had
2: me on them tent hooks. Gone. Sorry.
0: Yeah. Well, no, I don't think it's like an amazing game or anything. It's, it it feels remarkably dated now in a way hmm. which I didn't really expect, and it's it's not the game's fault. I think it was. It wasn't. Um, you know, uh, miles away from uh, the standard of me th- me three or anything like that. It's just, it's, it's just things have moved on and, you know, I've, having played things like God of war and Spider-Man in the last few years, just the way that it presents conversations feels very crude now. Um, which isn't, you know, which isn't, it's, 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 its fault really, but, um, but it's just a, it's just a, it's a big stupid neon space opera, isn't it? I mean, uh. That's all right. I mean, maybe opera is rather overselling it. It's more like fucking space karaoke at yeah. 3 a.m. Well, I mean,
2: there is only a year between family. Andromeda and God of War. So, really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I Andromeda's was... 2018, Andromeda's 2017. Oh, okay. Well, then. Maybe... <laughs> <laughs> Just, in Just in case. I mean, I want to really help calibrate. you with the
0: Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for easing the ship in between its ribs for me. Um, yeah, no, it's. Uh, I I don't really know why it exists in the way that it does. It feels very much like they they just decided to do more of the same and they don't really have a good excuse for doing more of the same. So that's why they need to shift it to another galaxy, I guess, and sort of start over. But it does, it does feel like, I mean, I'm, I'm perfectly happy with more of the same from just like the a, a consumption point of view, but narratively sort of, str- you know, in terms of where that series should have evolved, I feel like it should have had some, a, be- a better premise really, rather than just do it all over again. Yeah, not like, space.
2: the, man, I had I actually went through a period of time where I completely forgot that Mass Effect and Promander exists, and that, is a weird thing for me anyway. And especially weird because I'm like basically one of its only defenders, I think. Um, And that, I think it's a really interesting folly now to some extent, because I think regardless of the the many difficulties that it went through in development, I think it was definitely made with the assumption that we're doing another trilogy. And what I would say is that, and I don't want to, give anything away it definitely ends feeling like it is established for a new trilogy right right and i think if they if you went back in time and you could say like all right everybody this is you're going to get to make one new mass effect game you're not going to get to make three then yeah the place the the, the, the place they set up for andromeda 2 to begin would probably be where they should start. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I see. and so it's right, and, and which is very which is very similar to, you know, uh, I think the, the comparison I've always drawn, I probably drew it on this podcast at the time, is that Andromeda is a lot like Mass Effect One in a lot of ways. It's hmm. sort of ambitious in ways it can't quite fulfill technically. Um it sort of and it is trying to do a having to do a lot of work of setting up a universe and and i think as you've identified in this case justifying the continued existence of that fictional universe rather than just reimagining okay. it for the first time while also having its own stories and its own characters and things like that but it does just about pull it off and it's not an amazing game but mm. like it's that i think it is more than some of its parts and um and i think it's it's like it's now it's sort of a weird thing to recommend because i think i think it does have a good start middle and end i think good ending i think um a satisfying and kind of complete feeling ending which is not the case for every mass effect game famously um and it also learns the right lessons from particularly mass effect 3 and the way that i think the i think you're right to call it space karaoke but i think the the the, the broader like accurate description would be it's a space soap opera and yeah, I think they started by thinking we're making space opera, and therefore you just need to put soap in front of it. Basically, like we're making mm. space opera, therefore everything has to be super grand, and that's what people will attach to. They will attach them to. They will attach themselves to the heroic characters and the dastardly villains. And no, actually, Bioware learned very much through both this and through Dragon Age that people attach themselves to the to the details onto the the day to day life of these characters. And the fact that it's it's a lot more so. Prop- Mass Effect has always been more like right. TV, uh, a TV show, like a Star Trek series, where you just get to spend time with these characters. And Dragon Age is always much more like a, a novel, like a series of fantasy novels. Um, they're not cinematic, really, in that sense, in the sense of cinema. Yeah,
0: and I think. I mean, I think yeah. 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 On, sorry. So I think I think I think you're dead right. I think uh, it gets it gets straight to the sort of warm camaraderie thing that uh, epitomizes sort of the best moments of the series. Yeah. And it gets to that really, really quick, and w- wallows in it in a way which uh, maybe the others don't quite as much. And I think that's that's correct because I think, you know, I mean, gen- the, the the sort of science fiction underpinning it is quite weak, really. Mm. And and like the the things that make Mass Effect good are the are the pals, it's the <laughs> friends you make along the way. Yeah, it is,
2: yeah. And they do yeah. like, and they, and that's the I think what that's what's interesting about it is uh, in hindsight is they, I think, made the very smart decision that they couldn't keep escalating or raising the stakes on the kind of, you you know, galaxy-ending threat of Mass Effect 3. And Mass Effect 3 Hmm. is very much a kind of, you've made all these friends and now they're all in mortal danger, deal with it, kind of TV show finale thing, really. And Andromeda is like, actually, there's a lot less peril. There is peril, but there's a lot less, and therefore characters are more free to express a range of things, and they do. And there's some really good character Hmm. stuff in that game and some really, you know, kind of nice beats and
0: like yeah. the protagonist know. i think is super likable yeah in a, in a way which i i think is much more immediately interesting and characterful than shepherd ever was to be honest yeah and i agree i say that accepting that that means that there is less space for the player to define the character but i'm, I'm perfectly happy with that if the words that come out of her mouth are, are actually just much more pleasant <laughs>
2: yeah i really liked Ryder. like i thought I, you know and again yeah. it's sort of like a shame that you know they won't get another outing. I think because it feels like that's really what they were planning for. And I remember finishing it because I, um, I think I said this on the podcast before, but that game was getting so ripped to pieces when it came out that I think I instinctively felt mm. compelled to defend it. Partly because I just don't mm. like seeing anyone's work get ripped apart. Really, not when, particularly when it's not for like a. There's no, you know, there was no moral objection to the existence of the game. There was just a kind of collective glee in 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 giving. Uh, Bioware and EA are kicking, and that's motivated by a lot of things. But it's not. It's you know, it it is a it is a true thing that, um, and you see this happening more recently with other games. You've seen this with The Last of Us as well. That sometimes these sort of um, broader um, critical showings align unfortunately with what the Nantity Gamergate set are after in a given time and that happened with Andromeda as well where yeah the critics have got bad things to say but that's actually l- lending kind of energy to a hate campaign that's mm-hmm. directed because of the progressive elements of the game exactly the same thing is true of The Last of Us at the moment where there are critics with good important things to say that are critical of that game and there's an enormous bad faith contingent as well and that creates a really horrible environment, I think, in the discourse about the game because it's it's important for people to flag where their criticism is coming from. But at the same time, it's very easy for people to lump all negativity together. And some people do. And that was definitely happening yeah. for Andromeda. And so I felt compelled to defend it, but obviously trying to be a good critic and, and second guess myself and make sure mm-hmm. I'm not just enjoying it because it's got the beeping and the whooshing that I like. Um, <laughs> and the kissing. And then I remember like, it gets the one the, it's other great crime is it gets better as it goes. So it's like, it's, it is rare for a game to have like a better back half than the first half, but it does. And I remember oh, like being, yeah. um, And I remember being like, you know, 85 hours into it in the first week or something. So I was reviewing it in a hurry and getting a DM from another journalist who was like, I really like this. Do, do you like it? Is it okay <laughs> that I like it. <laughs> because like feeling really in this because because the the tide had turned against it quite as hard as it had um but yeah sorry you sent me ask, i think Marsh, it's, I, it's
0: a, it's no 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 i really mean here. this is i i did want like a, a sort of somebody to bounce this off because obviously nobody's really <laughs> talking about this game anymore um but i it, i think this is true of all bioware games because they're so big it is really easy to uh take them apart because there's they just don't have they can't manage the quality control across the you know the yeah. 30 to 80 hours that they take to play um and like that is a bad thing i mean that is something that that is a legit criticism of them but it, it does mean that if you are feeling ill disposed to the game in general then it's very easy for you to just uh pick out examples where the, the you know the uh, lines that are written for characters are just fucking hot garbage <laughs> yeah right <laughs> because you know, right. you know there, are, there are a lot of them i just i really wish they would make an eight hour game and yeah. they wouldn't they would just there's a lot of there's just a lot of conversations that people did not want to write and there's lines that just don't make any sense there's a character who takes her frustration out on you right at the beginning and then she apologizes immediately and she says i'm sorry my face is tired <laughs> like, <laughs> you, 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 what? Your face is tired. Do you just start shouting when you haven't moisturized? What, what does that even mean?
2: But, you I, know, I don't know. There's, in there's, the but yeah, but like, I, I'm thinking. I was thinking last night because last night, inexplicably, we decided to watch Paul Verhoeven's Showgirls, <laughs> okay. uh, which is <laughs> honestly one of the worst films ever made. And it's so bad that at times it, it it does it feels like it's been written by an AI. And after the fact, you can't. Explain that it exists, right? Mm-hmm. And I was reading after afterwards. I was fascinated by how bad it was, particularly it's Paul Hogan, right? Like Drobo Cop and Starship Troopers, and how could the person who directed those films make make this absolute garbage? And, um, and. The a lot of the interviews and things are just like I just kind of did, and then afterwards I was like, oh yeah, you're right, it is bad, <laughs> and like and so I do I do sort of wonder about like in a game script as long as any big RPG, yeah. like it doesn't surprise me at all that like some very Friday afternoon dialogue just stays there.
0: Yeah, and also time. I mean a lot of the I mean the, the, I think a more critical problem is that some of the conversations just don't make sense. Like causally, there's no way for them to react in the way that they do to one another and i feel like that's 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 definitely like uh a problem of the way that 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 conversation probably came together and then got remixed when different gameplay requirements were asked of that conversation they had the voice lines were already in the can you know and they had to kind of throw these these conversations together to to get an outcome which was served the gameplay but just didn't make any sense and like that stuff that, those kind of problems go away if you're if you if you're making a six to eight hour game rather than a 30 right. hour game, I think. I
2: do I do wonder with Andromeda, I don't know this for sure, but it, it does feel like they were very unsure about how to begin it. And mm. I wouldn't be surprised to discover that the first six hours of the game were remixed a few times. And that's one of the reasons that the stuff it feels really wonky at the start. Because it definitely like, as soon as it really, you know, it actually takes maybe 10, 20 hours to like, really start. Hmm. Um which again is very similar to Mass Effect 1.
0: How many and... of those hours are just you slowly panning onto asteroids on which you then press the A button and then pan back out again?
2: I don't remember because time's a flat <laughs> circle, but um <laughs> I spent a lot of time in that game, but like um I don't I genuinely don't remember. But yeah, like it when it gets like I think there was definitely a point when it was like, oh you have to encourage people to get to this point because then it sort of settles into its groove. And hmm. The, the content is templated because of the open world thing, but kind of acceptably so. And the, the cadence of... Um, like, there's a there's a mission, I think, maybe 10, 20 hours in, that kind of actually pro- properly introduces some stakes and the villain in a kind of formal way. And then you get like, oh, okay, here's the game. And mm-hmm. it's like, you know, that's a, that's definitely a problem. Like, it really is definitely a problem. Um, but it makes me wonder, like, i, I I'm very much more conscious model than i was then about how games are made and and it feels like if they had teams on different things then there's a team about you know game structure and sort of like mid-game narrative design that i think got it down really and there's a team about combat like it's the best combat in the series particularly Mm -hmm. of all the abilities and so they they nailed it and i think at some point there was some difficult decisions about how you open the game that didn't resolve happily by the time the game came out that's my guess but it is just a guess
0: yeah yeah anyway not as yeah. bad as i thought it would be there you go <laughs> put that on <in> the box <laughs> in your deluxe yeah. edition <laughs> three pounds
2: <laughs> mm. it's going to be free i imagine on ea play or something like that mm. oh we we could talk about other ea uh news quickly they announced um star wars oh, yeah. squadrons
1: about that. oh yeah yeah yeah
0: yeah does that reignite your your star wars tingle he's always got a star wars
2: tingle i think i I always (laughs) have a star wars tingle there's no cream for what i got um (laughs) but it's i mean i'm I'm happy for ea motive that they got to make another cool star wars game it's so it's a 5v5 multiplayer dogfighting game with a single player campaign the scope of the single player campaign has not been revealed um I got I got pals at that studio, and I'm happy that they got to keep doing Star Wars. They do make beautiful Star Wars, so I'm just excited to get to fly around in a different kind of environment. But yeah, just happy it exists. Oh, the, no! The good thing is they've they have confirmed that it's got full VR support. So oh. that's all I really want from it is you know it, I think as soon as you, if you pivot it to think of it as a VR game, then actually it becomes even more exciting because just want to sit in a TIE fighter cockpit and hear the <laughs> nyah sound from the
0: inside. Mm. <laughs> yeah. That's all I want. Have you been playing another game this week, Chris? I have. I have been
2: enjoying very much, although I've only a few hours in, uh, Disparadoos 3. Oh,
1: Disparadoos.
0: I also like the Disparadoo.
2: Disparadoo. So, yeah, this is uh, that. Unfortunately, that I hope that pronunciation has not ruined this game for everybody, as it's ruined it for me. Um, it, we're talking about Desperados 3. Uh, unfortunately, there's a vine I very much love where a woman sees a sign that says uh, fresh avocado and she shouts in delight, Frazier avocado. And that's <laughs> fundamentally um, changed the way my brain perceives any word that ends in a DO. Um, so I. <laughs> As soon as I could see, I saw that Tom uh, Francis was very excited about the new Desperados game. And my brain went, ah, Desperadoos. And (laughs) it's going to be like that uh, forever now. Which is a shame for me and for the game uh, itself and for its developers. Uh, Me, 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 me. Or however many me's there are. Oh, yeah. um, um, Who are the people who made Shadow Tactics, which is the kind of uh, ninja stealth game. Mm. Uh, which was itself a kind of a love letter, I think, to many things, but specifically Commandos and Desperados, um, which uh, if you've not played these games, they're they're thought of as RTS games. They're kind of real-time uh, tactics games where a small group of Commandos or Cowboys kind of sneaks about a level uh, uh, sort of finding creative and violent solutions to sort of... Um, open-ended stealth problems. I think the best way to understand them though like RTS I think is actually a bit misleading. It's isometric Deus Ex or isometric Hitman. Hitman like they they have a lot of um immersive sim DNA, I think. And uh despite the the sort of zoomed out perspective and uh it's really good basically. Um it's really good. It's very um I don't know where to start, really, in terms of explaining why it's good.
1: How does it? How does it differ to? Um, uh, oh, you said the name, and I can't remember the previous Shadow game. Shadows Tactics. Shadow Tactics. Yeah.
2: So I didn't play enough of that. Uh, the control scheme is exactly the same, as far as I can tell, hmm. um, and it feels very similar in terms sort of structurally. So, you're talking about being able to, you know, mark an enemy and to see their vision cone, and and you know switching between stances and hiding in bushes. Um, you can you you kind of control ultimately like a posse of characters and you're controlling all of them and you can freeze you can pause it to set up one action per character and then unpause to execute them, which creates some really cool stuff and that play mm-hmm. ties into sort of special abilities that play off each other in an interesting ways. so your main guy um has two pistols and he has a small exception to the um one action when you're paused rule, which is that he can target his pistols independently. So you can technically line up two shots with him. And it's all about creating these moments where you sort of line up a situation and create these sort of multi-angle takedowns using different characters kind of, you know, whistling to lure people into traps. Um, There's a doctor who has a medical bag that you can throw that enemies will investigate. And if they open it, it releases a blinding gas (laughs) <laughs> that temporarily stuns them, at which point he can kill them or someone else can kill them.
0: Oh, that tired um, old West trope.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I the it... gas bag. Yeah, the <laughs> yeah. Um and it's very like in that sense. You know, just sort of mechanically, it's got similar to Shadow Tactics or or even something like Invisible Ink or in, indeed even like I can understand why Tom would be playing this because it's very much in his wheelhouse for a bunch of reasons, but similar to Hitman, but also similar to things like Invisible Ink and Tactical Breach Wizards and um, other games of this kind. It has a, a, a strong game layer where there's just a lot of really clear rules and the UI is very good about expressing kind of who can see what and giving you time to... To uh, you know, to figure out what the likely reaction thing to things is going to be. So the cowboys in the long leather trench coats are extra tough, and only one of your characters can actually one shot them. Um, anyone who's wearing a poncho doesn't take any shit. That's a rule. That's, that um, that sounds
1: sounds right.
2: <laughs> yeah, if you're wearing a poncho, you're not very easily distracted. So, like, if you throw the medical bag out of a bush in front of someone with a poncho, they'll just say, "Ah, fuck," and then walk off somewhere else.
0: It's like, surprisingly sweary, don't... isn't it? I mean, it seems kind yeah. of unnecessarily so. There's people saying <laughs> yeah, exactly. "fucker" all the time. You're like, yeah. oh, all yeah. right. <laughs> all right, yeah. Calm down. It's not Deadwood.
2: Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, and like, um, so it's got this sort of thick kind of rules layer where you can determine all that stuff. One thing I really love about it is in the tutorial, it basically tells you that quick saving and quick loading is a core game mechanic. Don't worry about it. And I really love that they do that because mm. it takes away, you know, you can, when you've completed a mission, once you can go for like special, you know, getting extra stars on the mission, going back and doing it without saving, for example, and stuff like that, or doing it under time limit, but they, they don't earn you anything. As far as I can tell, there's no XP or unlocks to get by doing that. It's just for the fun of doing it. And I'm really great. I think that's such a great kind of heads up kind of call from the developer to say, you know, to, to cut off any possibility of anxiety about saves scumming and saying, no, this is a game about this, do do this. Even to the point where if you go a minute without quicksaving, it will just flash up a little timer that then counts up the amount of time you've passed, that has passed since you last quicksaved. Because um, it really wants you to, to approach these little moments in as little self-contained stealth challenges. Um, and then... And so, and there is some room for kind of recovering from accidents, but I don't think that's really necessarily the point of the game. The point of the game is sort of threading this really kind of elegant, um, as I say, kind of multifaceted um, route through a stealth challenge. And then, um, Tom will almost certainly talk about this because um, he's the person who drew my attention to it in the first place. But the game has the most fucking banging replay system. Hmm. It's so satisfying and it doesn't need to be as satisfying as it is. Basically, when you finish a mission, you get the map for that mission laid out. And then you see colored lines which represent your characters um, move in, in like 32 times speed through the level, showing all the different divergent paths you took, and, and with you know little splat effects where you got kills and takedowns and things like that. And it even shows brief divergences that are based on your um quick loads as little ghost pathways that kind of thread in wrong directions at times and it creates this sort of like really i don't know really satisfying um map of the, the the decisions you made and and this this is like it's really satisfying particularly if you manage to pull off um having two characters operate separately in different parts of the map in relative sync with each other which is quite hard to do and watching that happen like from a it's just really rewarding it's really cool i really like that it. It does all that stuff but without leaning too hard on like meta, um, you know, um, progression and things like that in order to reward you, just letting you reward yourself by doing it well is super cool.
0: Yeah, it's an incredibly generous game in that regard. Just feels like it's it's never judging you. It, it even prompts you after after the the first full proper mission. You know, is this is this t- too hard? Too easy? You know, it's almost like it just it's just saying, don't worry about it. You, you just play it however you like. It's really good. Yeah, really nice. How are you finding it, man? I, I fucking love it. I, 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 I the quick saving thing is it, some for some reason that feels just exquisite to me. Like uh, the fact that it's constantly prompting you. The fact that it writes in, in the world during at least the tutorial mission, you know, quick save now, <laughs> you know, just to, to yeah. get, you kind of acc- acclimatize the idea of quick saving at a certain cadence. And yeah, that, that replay. Fabulous. Hmm. It, was, it was really satisfying when you see all these kind of red dots uh, emerge, congregate in a single area and then explode into little blood splatters and skulls because you killed them all at once with a piece of dynamite. I was just like, yep i remember that yeah <laughs>
2: <laughs> i was good
0: i, I was did good. well <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> i won't tell you how many times i had to quick load in order to get to that point. So, but it is very satisfying I, yeah yeah
2: the other thing I really like about it is despite being an isometric game it feels really like um it has some a real sense of life to it i think in the way that the characters move particularly because there's some like the way they you know when characters are talking to each other in like a little cutscene or things they don't it's not the traditional warcraft thing of like we stand completely still the cinematic black bars appear and we listen it looks mo capped you to know me. it does look mo capped but it's like I think it's the first case I've seen of mo capped you know cutscenes viewed from mm. quite a distant isometric and there's something about that my brain really really likes like I as you know I mean I really like dioramas generally like mm. I really like miniatures and sort of Like the, as uh, you know, as people know from my hobbies and things, but also just the the feel of them. I love looking into a kind of a constructed train set diorama type thing and seeing all the details and something, not just the fact the first level is a train, but like there's something about see, like not all isometric games tickle that part of my brain. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because of the fidelity of the thing. So I see game pieces on a board a lot of the time, even in something like StarCraft or, or Commander Conquer. Whereas in this, some part of me goes, like, yeah, this is a little living diorama that i'm tinkering with and 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 playing with and i find that very satisfying
0: you can rotate the the view as well so uh, yeah I, I don't know if i'm um, certainly on the that first train level which is the only one i've played and i've played a tiny bit of the the next uh major engagement um i don't know if it becomes important to rotate because you can pretty much play that first train level just using the default perspective and scan you know left i think, because that's i think
2: yeah, the I think that's a case of them being lovely designers who anticipate that you won't do that. So yeah. the first level is kind of designed that way. The second level's
0: less so, I think. All right, so you do need to rotate in the in later levels. I wouldn't
2: say need, but like that's when I sort of had the feeling like, oh, I can do this, and I, ben- I benefit from having done so. You know, like it's not it's still laid out really nicely, nice way. Like, but yeah, like I think I think that first level is very deliberate in being quite linear and. Um, using the train does the, the, the length of the train carriage is a way of kind of giving you real really clear sense of where you are relative to the action of the mission which is
0: real nice
1: I'm gonna have to play it
0: yeah yeah just for yeah. the UI man I got so excited about the UI I immediately had to go and tell people and now join <laughs> like the discord which doesn't happen all the time <laughs> <laughs> it's hot
2: it's hot. um and and there is a demo that includes that first mission as well so oh, is there? you know there's yeah there's um that's a low risk um a low risk question. i think it's a timed demo because that's what i did first um but yeah it's great tasty fresh disparado
1: <laughs> shall we do some questions i say yes
2: i say yes uh, i guess i have to because i'm going to read them out Our first question, and we should actually note um, that we received a a real ton of questions. So apologies if we don't get to you this week. We're going to pick out a couple because we're very tired and brains don't work. Brain not working. Brain gone now. Sometimes good question end in, can you think of a game? And brains say, no,
1: there are no Um, games. Yeah.
2: So we're going to read the ones that we can think of something to say about. But thank you to everybody who wrote in. First up, Teddy writes, dear cravat and blazer. As a fellow alumni of Bishop Wordsworth's, I believe Chris is as well, that's correct, that is the school I went to, it is always a shock when I hear him mention Salisbury growing up in the area. I'm from Shrewton originally. Congratulations. <laughs> a bit of a lame intro into the question, but as someone who grew up in a small rural village who has since moved to industrial parts up north, I find him strangely drawn to pastoral games such as Everybody's Gone to the Rapture and a Short Hike to name but a few. Do you guys find that where you grew up or your history draws you into a certain genre or setting of game? Or are you doing all you can to escape your past selves? Cheers for cheering me up in lockdown and keep on potting from Teddy. So,
0: hmm. I probably look for a contrast to my current circumstances. I don't know if I have a history of avoiding or gravitating towards places which are diametrically the opposite of Orpington. <laughs> but, you know.
2: <laughs> what is the opposite of Orpington? I
0: don't
1: really know. I don't know if there is, Vegas. So, what is, yeah, <laughs> what is yeah, the, the Ur game you're going for? Are you searching restlessly, looking for the opposite of Orpington? Probably to... like
2: GTA Vice City or something, right? Like yeah. Like that would be it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, I actually, I think I had the the opposite life experience of Teddy because I was born and spent my childhood in Liverpool and then moved to the South when I was in my early teens. But uh, I have found that certain sort of industrial places in games have kind of um, made me homesick at times for, for Liverpool, particularly. Um, and I got this from uh, Dunwall in Dishonored, oh. this, um, and which is interesting. I remember having a conversation with Harvey Smith about this. I think where because that that uh, city is very much actually based on London and Edinburgh and sort of American kind of coastal whaling towns um, for obvious reasons and and, and port cities and. Um, and not Liverpool at all, but I think in the synthesis of those things they actually ended up in some ways kind of reflecting aspects of of that city. And so that's that's been a game that that helped sort of um, help me articulate why I found that place so kind of engaging and, and wanted to spend time there because there's something about the um, the the Docklands and the kind of industrial, apparatus of sh- big shipping that will always be really evocative of my childhood for me because my mum was a, a customs official and um would take me on the big boats basically when I was very little so I'll always have like I think something about like you know big cranes and big old clanky ships will always uh resonate with me that would be my example of this I think okay. I wouldn't say that would draw me to every genre of game but yeah put a Big tanker in something, and I'll probably be able to smell it in my brain.
1: (laughs) I do look. I do like. I think. I don't know because I I like a medieval city or town Mm -hmm. in a game, and I think, but I don't think that's just because I'm British, you know, because because it's such an archetype that's found in a lot of particularly american games as well like a, a love of the old medieval but yeah i oh. like a nice i like twisted oh, uh, yeah. sort of alleyways and steps multi-level steps oh. beautiful yeah so i'm mm. talking about i think i They're like that thief thief towns i think i like
0: that because uh of a an early love of escher drawings though rather than mm. any, any <laughs> environment that i've actually been in
1: but. yeah yeah, because I, I would never actually want to live in, you know, I, I also like the idea, you know, you go, you go in sort of Tuscan, real real Tuscan towns, mm-hmm. and you see, you know, um, you can see sort of houses kind of pressed up against each other, and, you know, uh, you know built upon each other, and up, and up, and up, and, and across, and it's all fitting together very tightly. And I find that kind of romantic, and... I also would hate to live in it because it would mean living really close to neighbors and, oh, God, the, the amount of noise and, oh, disruption. So I do like them in games because they're, you don't get neighbors in games. Mm-hmm.
2: Our next question comes from John, who writes, Hi, Craig and I'd like to formally agree with Alex on the t- topic of bundle angst. I bet bundle angst would look good in German. <laughs> I actually have a problem with sales of indie games generally. I find that I'm often reminded about indie games I might like to play when I get a Steam, for example, notification because I have wishlisted them. However, I don't really like the idea of getting discounts for indie games, which seem to have a lower price point already because of various cultural features in consumer behavior that have been well discussed by CNC in previous pods. I think the creativity and the sheer labor that goes into game making is already heavily discounted, and I feel honestly a bit gross about it. However, what this means is that I typically don't buy the game at sale price and say, oh, I will get that later, and then predictably forget. Am hmm. I mad? Am I the only one who feels this frisson when I see a game on sale or a truly staggering bundle? On a more useful and less self-indulgent note, is there a good advertising push that isn't about sales? Thank you for the podding, John. I thought this was an interesting set of observations, because we've talked yeah. about price points in, in many different contexts, but rarely the kind of ethics of it. I think the the um obviously the most staggering recent bundles on everyone's mind is for such a good cause that you can see the 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 um all of the developers involved volunteered their work up for a good cause in that case. Yeah. Um, but I think it's quite the same thing as a sale undercutting the value of someone's work in another context um
1: I, but i i don't know i i do suspect that that's the effect i know it was nobody's nobody's kind of intention but, right, do,
2: but yeah it's a matter of like they you you have to assume that everybody who did that did that knowing that they were maybe maybe permanently devaluing something they've worked very hard on but doing it at a critical juncture where that you know the, the need was so immediate and the um the desire to take meaningful action so immediate that I can completely understand people fully consenting to that.
1: Oh right. sure. Yeah, yeah yeah.
2: Um in the case of like so I, I I kinda wish Tom Francis was here to to actually give some real weight to this, but I'm pretty sure that when games go on sale and I know this anecdotally from hack um you make a lot more money than you otherwise would. Mm-hmm. In, in normal business and and the 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 thing that's hard to split is the fact that that's always going to be partly the simply the promotion. Like I think one of the interesting things identified in this email is that, um, you don't you know you, you can't tell Steam remind me this game exists. Just remind me this game exists because I want to buy it at full price. You can tell Steam tell me about this game again if it goes it gets lower in price, and that's an interesting thing. Like we tend to, and this is the sort of, you know, the market like this is what the question is asking, like other ways of doing marketing pushes that aren't just around discounts. Um, that's interesting to me because I do wonder what component, um, you know, how, how, how big is factor is the sale price and how big a factor is simply a lot of people getting a mail out about a game that they've already registered, interested in.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It must be 50, 50. I mean, you know, it's the nudge, isn't it? And the kind of the game that you play, thinking, "Oh, maybe this should I buy it this? This sale it might go cheaper in a few, you know, next month or something." You know, or I'll bite it now. I will bite now. But I, yeah, I think, I think, I think, you know, part of the question was, is there another way to create that kind of weight of attention on a game outside of a sale? And I guess. The one answer to that is launch, which, of course, you know, launches remain a really important thing about for games. And I think that there's there's one piece of advice that I keep seeing from people around games, which is you could put your game on for more expensive than you think. I think that a lot of developers, particularly now in a sale kind of a sale heavy environment, fear putting putting their games on too expensive and yeah, the advice is that you could probably go more expensive than you're thinking in general. in, in general terms, mm. yeah. And you know, sure. and there's also an argument that kind of if you go up high, it means you can come down l- lower. You know, if you can say eighty percent off, but your price is normally twenty quid. You know, then, then you're probably in a better position. Huh. Um, mm. But it's, I, I, yeah, I, I, it's. I think that there are lots of things going on with all of this. And I think one of my concerns is, is just player expectation. You know, what is the value of a game? You know, quite aside from what is a reasonable income for a developer. But of course, because of course, even with sales, I'm not sure how it all breaks down across everything that's available. You know, whether whether actually it's the same people getting most of the revenue in sale conditions, or whether sale conditions are what allow smaller games actually to start making some money. I don't, yeah, my intuition would say it's probably the richer still getting richer. Um, that the that pattern remains consistent, but I don't know.
2: Our next question comes from some dude who writes, "Dear questions from Ravens." During this quarantine, I've been going back to games I used to know. The latest of which is. Uh, Armored Core. This is perhaps my favorite mech game ever. It has an excellent story about late-stage capitalism that is told exclusively in Corpo-speak mission briefings and terse in-mission comms, and the most detailed customization of any mech game. You can even add weights to your mech to affect its center of balance. It also has the greatest gulf between hour one and hour 100 of any game I've seen. You start the game walking around, shooting mooks and getting shot. You end the game samurai slashing anyone you come across as a flying, boosting, dodging robot god that never goes below the sound barrier. Can you think of other games that change so radically as you gain experience? Thanks for the break from this existential nightmare, some dude.
1: <laughs> well, the one that I'm playing at the moment that that uh, Tom Francis and I were banging on about last week would be, and this is across the this the the sort of just a single run, but um, Monster Train, where you just <laughs> become absurdly powerful over. The course of a single run, you know, that you're doing you know 20 damage in the first kind of the start of the run, but towards the end, you're just dealing thousands of points of damage. As you're, oh, that's an actually that's a game, but yeah, uh, th- that's the kind of the one actually, there is another game, uh, this is a bit like that Disgaia, um, mm. the turn based um, uh, strategy game tactics game, where by the end of the game, you're sort of dealing. The numbers are so huge (laughs) that they don't really fit on screen anymore. That's a game. Numbers are good, aren't they? When they Mm, go up.
0: Oh,
2: I'd love to see it. (laughs) Um, I I was thinking, my my answer to escalation questions is always Bayonetta, but I love Bayonetta because it starts at 10 and it (laughs) gets to like 23 by the time it ends. So it's not really a case of like feeling that you start, you know, we started at the bottom and now we're here. It's like, you know, we started falling through space on a clock tower. Yeah,
1: I was like just I think. thinking, yeah, the, and then, the escalation. And then, we started we, off running down a clock tower, falling yeah, through space. <laughs> but you
2: end riding a motorbike up a skyscraper that's also a space rocket to fight God. So, uh, yeah, um, you know, like that, that that I think qualifies. But, um, yeah, uh, circumstantial spoilers for Bayonetta there, I suppose. Sorry about that. Um, but, yeah, I'm trying to think of other games where you start really lowly and eventually end up completely uh, dominant. I suppose, you know, recent fave Man to sort of qualifies as this in that you start as a little bull pup shot running away from crocodiles, swimming away from crocodiles, running, you know, shot. Um <laughs> in a in a in a swamp and and you end as a you know, teleporting lightning beast killing hundreds of hundreds of sailors as you zap their boats to smithereens and grab their you know torpedoes out of the water and bat them into their friends that's a good escalation from (laughs) shark game to what the fuck is this um the
1: katamari thing being the kind mm. of the ultimate expression
2: yeah but even i suppose the the key thing is like the key escalation that's harder to identify is where it fundamentally changes your play style because the the definition of katamari is like you're a happy little ball at the start and you're a happy big ball at the end but Mm. you're always rolling
1: the things that um, you're, yeah, the, the stuff you're rolling up remains fundamentally the same.
2: Yeah, exactly. All is equal in No Katamari Ball. And um, whereas, yeah, like, I think maybe, like, I mean, it's a, maybe an obvious answer, but um, the Deus Ex and Dishonored games particularly, like, I wouldn't exclude um, Hitman from this, because those games are about uh, sort of ascending to a power level where you're playstyle can change quite dramatically from the beginning of the game where you're basically a dude um, to the end of the game where you're a magic man. D- Dishonored is slightly different, I think, because in my experience, it's Dishonored escalates more in its environments. I mean, Deus Ex does as well, but I think I've always felt more like a kind of you know, fully kitted out Cyberman that can handle anything towards the end of Deus Ex than I necessarily doing Dishonored. Maybe I'm wrong.
1: Hmm.
2: I'm just talking now. talk talk talk
1: that's what we're here for
2: our final question for the evening comes from Noah who writes dear IOs and MDots new console hype is upon us but this time I'm actually feeling it there was all sorts of talk of gigahertz and teraflops but who cares about that garbage soon games will be freed from the frankly archaic digital phonograph that is the hard disk and dragged into 2016 good lord I think this will be a much bigger deal than people realize, I think referring specifically to the use of SSDs on the new consoles. Streaming assets from slow memory to RAM isn't just about load time, it increases the size of games on disk, sometimes by a factor of two, requires comprom- compromises in file size for just about everything, and necessitates larger and larger amounts of expensive RAM. If the PS5 solution actually works, it will make the dev's job much easier and we change how game worlds are designed. You could have things that the player could conceivably see within less than a second unloaded from memory if the asset is smaller than a couple of gigabytes. What techno-optimist dreams have you seen realized or crushed over the years? And did they actually affect games in a meaningful way? How soon will we embrace the new flesh or be eaten by robots (laughs) after the singularity? That comes from uh, Noah. And just as an addendum to this, I did see uh, someone on Twitter today talking about how the new Horizon Zero Dawn game will purportedly not need loading screens because of this technology as you run around a big open world hmm. so that's cool
0: yeah i mean uh, in terms of how it changes uh the gate the content of the games it would seem from uh the ps5's showcase last week not very much is the answer like <laughs> right i think it was one of the i don't know if i was feeling particularly ill-tempered last week but i think it was probably the most <laughs> underwhelming uh new console lineup launch that i've witnessed since maybe the famed ridge racer giant enemy crab incident um mm. it was just everything was just very uh stayed and predictable and there didn't seem to be really any new sorts of games taking advantage of these masterful technologies i am actually excited about the opportunities that ssds will bring and uh, all of that stuff does sound good but uh just there wasn't terribly a large amount of imagination in the uh yeah it was
2: very um it felt like yeah like
0: Oh, it's another action game where you're in third person, spamming robots, and like, yeah,
2: right. And not to be like, you know, everyone was like, "Is it? Is they are they going to reveal Horizon Two or God of War 2? And it was like, which, which, which well produced narrative led open world uh, third sequel. person action game sequel is it going to be? Like, and the, you know, the, both of those originals are great games, and you know, I can understand the desire for sequels. But yeah, there's no sort of there isn't a tremendous thrill in it, particularly because like I'm thinking about, you know, it's been three ish, three and a half years since I got my PC, my current Mm. PC, and I'm thinking it might be time to upgrade again. And, you know, that's great and everything, but like it, it, the consoles really are just hopefully more affordable gaming PCs now, really. Yeah. It's what they are. Um, PS five, very big, very big,
1: just big boy. It's kind of surprising that, um, you know if you sort of look back at you know the playstation 1 playstation 2 playstation 3 when they were announced they were accompanied by frankly d- misleading but incredibly exciting tech demos from sony right mm. you know classic demos of kind of ducks bobbing about in realistic water and t-rexes and and all that kind of thing um you know, and there was something that you could get properly excited about, and then be disappointed by. A lot of the know, first party games were,
0: were really off the wall as well, at least in in their their mm. premise. Like, I mean, if you think back to, I mean, Little Big Planet came out of re- really yeah, right. really nowhere, and that was, and this time Little Big Planet returns, but as a canned adventure. <laughs> you know, it's just a it's just an action adventure game, and you know, it, 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 the, the PS4's got Dreams coming out, which looks incredible, but there doesn't seem to be whereas. I was expecting there to be something crazy and it just feels like gaming's lexicon has expanded so so much over the last few years that and this this showcase of games didn't take any any opportunity to to find new genres within that everything seemed to be a a third
1: person I don't I don't expect uh, them to do just try to set up a new genre though I just just I just want to kind of like sort of um challenge that because because I think you've what Sony need to, to to communicate is, hey, don't worry, <laughs> we got you covered with this new thing, and I think that that's you know, so one of the one of the underwhelming things about it is that GTA Five is coming out on it, right? Um, but GTA Five is coming out, and you, if you own it on PS Four, then you'll have it for free on your new one and you know what they're trying to say hey consistency everybody yeah it's going to be more of the thing and it's going to be more of the stuff that you know and there's nothing to be afraid of um and i think that was the message and it's just that it doesn't really come with with kind of and this is why you need this as opposed to the thing you've already got and i think that's what they used to do well and like the people who are making that argument now fucking epic which is which never used to be the case that it was the the middleware people that were selling the next generation mm. hardware. That's crazy.
2: Right. I mean, but also like the message, it kind of reminds me of the Destiny thing. Destiny is also incidentally going to be free on PS5 if you own it on PS4, that kind of right. thing. Right, yeah. So, but it's like, but it's similar to the message that they're having to get across, which is like, please invest in this new thing because it's going to inconvenience developers less than ever. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's not, we're going to, you know, we haven't necessarily like busted open a frontier um, that people can go and explore. It's like, they're going to have to do less work to get the version of the game that they have built for PC and Stadia to work on this. And you're going to perceive that efficiency, not at all, but on a macro scale, the audience, if such a thing could be said to exist, will love it. It's like, it's, it's less exciting as a big sell. The think. <laughs> Um, but that's also partly because like that's the furrow that they've dug for themselves. And I think if there is a a real weakness to the business strategy for the PlayStation and the Xbox particularly, it's because they are in the same territory as the PC now. And their offering is essentially to provide a more affordable way into that. Like Nintendo being Nintendo, like the Switch is the thing it busts open is a big chunk of design territory and just challenges people to go make sense of it. Right. Like it's not about the technology apart from the peripherals and the form factor of the thing. And it's kind of portability. Um, and that's why it's so effective and so successful. Like it's, I think there's, I think it's maybe inevitable that this console generation ends up being a bit like, yeah, it's fine because it's just that all they have to do is not fuck up moving with the technology. Like, yeah. cause that's, you know, you know, like literally nothing matters apart a from is this easy to develop for and get your games running well. on. Like what matters other than that for these consoles and their success? I don't think there's anything.
1: Mm. I think it's. I think ultimately it's good news for PC because PC remains the that and the Switch remain places where they'll be smaller, more daring, interesting varied, you know, places for games that that yeah. can benefit from what's putting being put out on the big consoles, um, the new consoles, you know, while doing different things besides. Well, I think that's about wraps it up for questions this week. If you'd like to send us a question, you
0: can do so at questions at creating crowbar.com or tweet us at creating crowbar. All these recordings are uploaded as videos to YouTube. Uh, where you can find other stuff by us. The address for that is youtube.com slash creating crowbar. Thanks, as always, to our lovely backers on Patreon. You can back us too, if you so wish, at patreon.com slash creating crowbar. Or you can simply join our lovely Discord community, uh, the link for which is on our website, which is creating crowbar.com, sensibly enough. I am Marsh Davis. I am Chris Thurston.
1: I'm Alex Wilshire. Thanks for listening. Harry. Why,